what happened to me is I compared that truth to whatever truth I had in the secular world. It was like, well, what truth did I have before this? What's their truth? And I looked at these things on scales and I was like, there was no truth. <laughs> the secular world has no truth. It just throws up its hands, you know? And it's like Wallace talks about, I think David Foster Wallace talked about this where he's like, everybody worships, you know? Everybody worships something. And so it's like the, everybody out there is worshiping something. They just don't even know it. And then at least in this in the church, in the Christian church, you're like being very deliberate about what it is. And you've defined it. Welcome to another episode of Light with Bitcoin, where we delve into the human side of Bitcoin by chatting with one Bitcoiner at a time to discover their life stories, personal growth, and challenges through the lens of Bitcoin. I'm your host, Vivian Chang. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we have the honor to uh, have Matt Harder join us. Matt Harder is the founder of the democratic innovation firm Civic Trust, which he started in 2019 to help cities, community organizations, and residents collaborate in new ways. In his career, he's helped cities distribute more than $80 million towards community projects. He spends his 20s in Costa Rica, mostly working on uh, permaculture farms, and he recently relocated from New York to Boulder, Colorado, and is a passionate Bitcoiner. Welcome, Matt. Thank you. Glad to be here, Vivian. All right, let's get started. Um, I wanted to uh, hear your personal journey um, leading to this point. So tell me about yourself. What is your background? How did you um, find yourself interacting with uh, Bitcoin? I'm originally from Southern California, a small town called Ojai. And in my 20s, I moved to Costa Rica and when I was there, I started studying libertarianism. I was working on permaculture farms. And there's something about farming and permaculture that goes really well with sovereignty and community. And so I became interested in libertarianism. And when you become interested in libertarianism, you get interested in economics because that's a huge part of libertarian theory is basically Austrian economics. So I, I became very into that in my 20s. And then the, the manifestation of that for most Austrians, at least pre-Bitcoin, was gold. We were all interested in gold. And then I actually got an email from my dad a long time. It was 2013. And he was like, I just read in a newsletter that uh, there's this new thing that's like a digital form of gold. And I want you to try and figure out how to buy one. And so he sent me $200, and which was the price of Bitcoin at the time. He's like, go ahead and uh, try and buy one. And I was living in New York and I was so broke and just like not feeling it that I just spent the money and I didn't do it. And then uh, I felt really guilty. And then it spiked to like a thousand. And then I, I was like, oh, I missed the boat. I screwed up. And then it crashed back down after Gox to like just over 200 again. And I was back where I started. And I was like, dude, I got so lucky. It's back. So then I had had that time to think about it and get that guilt, that experience that most people have, that gap between learning about it and buying it. So then I was able to go in and that was the first part. And the second part of getting into Bitcoin was just a good friend of mine who worked on Bitcoin in New York, who was a theoretical physicist named uh, Bob McElrath, who, or McElrath, 
who led BitDevs in New York, and him and I had been friends for many years. And so he was able to really go through Bitcoin with me, kind of with a fine tooth comb. So I was able to answer all of my, I was able to ask all my Austrian economics questions, and he's able to answer how technologically Bitcoin fulfills that. And so between those two experiences, I was able to get a lot of conviction in Bitcoin. Yeah. Let's start from permaculture and individual sovereignty and community. What is permaculture? Yeah, it's a design principle where it's, it's an agricultural principle where you're trying to grow a diversity of things. So it's very against what's called monoculture, which is what we do in modern agriculture. It's just like a field full of strawberries or a field full of corn. That's awful for the environment in so many different ways. And so with permaculture, you're like, okay, maybe I'm going to have corn. Here's a perfect example. You're like, okay, I want to have corn. But when you have corn, you have weeds. And so instead of spraying herbicide to kill the weeds, I'm going to just grow squash. And those big leaves that squash have will cover the soil and suppress the weeds, right? Mm -hmm. But then you're like, well, if I want corn, I also need fertilizer. Well, so instead of spraying fertilizer, I'll grow beans with the corn. Beans actually have a fertilizing effect on the soil. Um, legumes do in general. So the beans will climb the corn like a trellis because beans need something to be supported on and they'll fertilize the soil. So now you've got these three plants growing together. This is called the three sisters and the native Americans used to use this design principle for growing the three because you're going to get a lot more food, a lot of denser food per acre when you're growing this way. Uh, and then you don't need nearly as many inputs and it makes the soil much more fertile. And so you take that theory and then you just blow it out into just like, okay, I want tree farms. I want all kinds of different fruits. I want all kinds of different stuff, but I want all of it to grow together harmoniously so that it's more productive, sustainable, better for the soil, um, et cetera. That's what permaculture is. And so you grow big farms like that. Well, not, it doesn't have to be big necessarily. You can grow a small farm like that, but it's common to have a community with several acres, 10 acres plus under cultivation. that's like dense and highly diverse. Mm -hmm. Does it make um, any difference when it comes to harvesting? Because um, for, for modern agriculture, there's a lot of those um, automated process where you drive a very big machinery and then it kind of completes the harvest process automatically very fast. So if the beans are all like climbing up of the, the corn, does it make a difference in the harvesting process? Yeah, you basically can't mechanize it. Uh, it's a manual process, which I think is a beautiful thing. Like where I'm from in California, we have a, a majorly thriving farm industry, um, but it's not as much row crops like corn would be. Um, and so, you know, we have like a lot of berries, for example. Most of your strawberries are going to come from California, um, raspberries, almonds. A lot of these things are very manual. The berry work is, is usually very manual. And so it's okay to have farm workers working the stuff. And like, yeah, it's a, it's a good lifestyle. If, you, if you're smart about how you grow everything, you can pay the workers well and, and do well yourself. You just have to find better clients. You can't sell yourself at like Walmart, you know, as like the, the, the way that cheap conventional food is sold. It's a value added type of food for sure. And how does uh, permaculture link to community and uh, freedom? Uh, providing for yourself, disintermediation, you know, um, and just sustainability, just thinking about like, okay, I've got this piece of land. I want it to provide for me now. 
and I want it to provide for me in the future. And so it forces you to think uh, in terms of, you know, low time preference, let's say, because you can't just spray it full of chemicals. Your story with Bitcoin is fascinating too. Um, 200, 200 to 1,000 and then back to 200. Lucky you, you didn't necessarily, it was a short period of, you know, regret, but um, the, the past corrected itself for you. Um, were, were you that aware that you didn't didn't put the $200 in when it went to 1,000? I think so, but he wasn't following it. So he didn't know. He just like read it in a newsletter from some gold bug and sent it to me and forgot about it. I think I told him and he was just like, yeah, whatever. Like, I don't care. I don't even remember what that is. <laughs> <laughs> to this day, he doesn't even really like Bitcoin. It was just a complete lark. It was random. It was just me getting lucky. Oh, really? Wow. Interesting. How come he's not a Bitcoiner yeah. yet? Because now you're a Bitcoiner. Yeah. He just, just typical of many people, like he... Yeah, he's just skeptical of the non-physical nature of it. You know what I mean? It's like gold, people can understand, and silver, people can understand. But if you're not tech savvy, if you're not comfortable with the internet, so to speak, you know, just like all these different processes that take place away from the physical environment, if you're not comfortable with that, you're not going to be comfortable with Bitcoin, um, I think. And so, and he's not, so. Will you be trying to entrepreneur your parents, your dad? I'm, I'm, I've given up on my dad just because I know that he's he's a real estate guy, so he's very comfortable with his form of investing. Uh, I am orange pilling my mom, and that's good enough because they share the same bank account. So, yeah, that's true. That's true. You only need to orange pill one parent to do the job. What made you made the decision to move to to Costa Rica? Obviously, you were backpacking, but was there any specific reasons why you chose um, Costa Rica over other places? Yeah, it was just a life circumstance. In college, I had gone down there with my dad and we wound up buying a piece of land, a piece of property down by Panama um, through just random circumstances, connections, friends we had who were doing the same thing. So it's just kind of an investment. And then when I graduated college two years later, we had made all these friends through that transaction. And one of them was our attorney who lived in San Jose, Costa Rica. So when I first went to Costa Rica, I lived with them for like six months to learn Spanish. And so it was just post-college. What do I want to do? I want to, you know, why don't I go learn Spanish in Costa Rica and stay with some friends? And that's how that got started. Right. And how long were you there? Five years. Wow, that's a long time. I was time. there from 28 to 29. Yeah, I'd come back to the United States occasionally to save money. But I moved down there when I was 28 and moved back when I was 29. So the majority like of time, to 29, yeah. so the majority of time of those five years, you were in Costa Rica. What were you doing? You could kind of split it in half. Like the first half, I was staying first in San Jose, which is the capital city, and then I got the travel bug and I started living on different farms and hostels and backpacking Nicaragua and all of Central America, and learning Spanish. And then, like I said, I'd go back to the United States to save money for a couple months and then come back down and just live. And then the second half, what I did is I came up with this idea that that piece of land that I had referred to earlier that we purchased, um, I think it was around this time. I don't remember. But anyway, uh, I think 2008 had happened. Yeah, 2008 had happened. Everything had crashed. Uh, our neighbors who were our friends back in the States who had bought land next to us in Costa Rica, that project just like collapsed. Everybody was gone. Everybody just like had left Costa Rica. Like the, the 2008 crash in 
the United States was 10 times worth, worse in Southern Costa Rica because that was all just speculative land purchasing for boomers to retire. So bottom line is like our land, like any development plans we had were gone. They were out the window. And so the second half of my time in Costa Rica, I decided to go to that land to live in a small town in Southern Costa Rica by Panama and to rehabilitate that land and start to develop it as an agricultural project or as a permacultural project. So I went down and spent two and a half years, rented a little house in this town on, on a bay in Southern Costa Rica and uh, just did a ton of manual uh, ecological work to try and fix the environment on this farm and get it ready to be a place humans could spend some time because it had been ecologically destroyed uh, by being a cattle pasture for decades and just wrecked it. And there was like no biodiversity, no fertility. So I went down and spent two and a half years doing that. Mm -hmm. So it seems like you were a little bit of off the grid for in that period of time. Um, Somewhat. Somewhat, yeah. Um, and uh, for Costa Rica, I, I guess five years, most of the if you're away from the States for five years, majority of the time, what are some of the distinctive um, differences you've noticed between Costa Rica and the United States? Well, those differences are changing really fast. So like 20 years ago, when I first started going to Costa Rica, they were it was another world. They were so far behind us. Like we were already on like Facebook and stuff and, you know, or, or whatever. We were like heavily using the Internet down in this town in southern Costa Rica where I was, which when you're talking about developing nations, the capital cities always have that's San Jose. They'll always have like high technology and people who are sophisticated and global and whatever. But when you're in the countryside town like I was, it's totally different. So I don't want to speak about Costa Rica like too generally, but when you're in a small town in Costa Rica, um, yeah, they had like one computer cafe with two computers in it. And that was the only way to get internet, I believe. And even when I lived down there like 12 years ago, when I had my house there, all they had was dial-up internet 12 years ago. Um, and they had a telephone monopoly that made it like impossible to have a smartphone. Like it was such a hassle. And now um, they're like technologically mostly caught up. I know that you recently just visited there just uh, after the Bitcoin conference Miami. In today's context, how would you describe the general awareness and adoption of Bitcoin among the local population in Costa Rica? There's a few different ways to look at that. General adoption is probably not high. You have, um, so you have Bitcoin jungle, which is in Uvita. That's where they had Nostra Rica. So that's two hours north of where our, our place is. Um, so you've got a, a strong Bitcoin core uh, community, not core developers, but like a core of Bitcoin people who are uh, in Southern Costa Rica and all around Costa Rica, but primarily in Bitcoin jungle. So it's definitely being used there. And you can go to markets where they accept Bitcoin and use Bitcoin. They're kind of trying to go off the El Salvador model. And, and it is working to a degree. And I'm actually going to go to a conference there, I think, in January. So I'm making friends with the Bitcoin jungle people. So there are people experimenting with it and taking it very seriously. And it's a good place for it in theory because their money, the cologne, inflates at like 13% a year. It's lost so much of its value. It loses half of its value every five years on average against the dollar, which is insane. You know, if, if you think about what it means to save in a currency that loses half its value every five years, it's just sort of like basically you don't even have you don't have a concept of saving at that point. Right. And so they have a need for sound money that's greater than our need. But the issue, the hitch, is that like 
there it's very hard to be low time preference when you live in a society where saving is barely even a concept. And so it's it's harder to orange pill people too because Americans have like saving like up until for a long time in America being a saver was like a smart thing to do. And you could even save money in a bank account. And I know that that's gone away because of inflation and now your money has to be in the stock market and you have to gamble with it. But at least historically, like saving money was like a smart, good thing to do. And so we can, when we're trying to understand Bitcoin, like we have that model of saving. They barely have that model of saving down there. And so uh, I think it's harder to orange pill them occasionally. So it's like, it's a good use case place because there's a high need for it, but the population can be a challenge. So we'll just have to wait and see. What do the rich people do? Where do they put their money? They save in the US dollar. They save in the US dollar. So like seven, somewhere between 40 and 60% of savings in Costa Rica are in the US dollar. So they have, if you're sophisticated, primarily urban people, you're going to be having a, a bank account with dual currency and you're going to save in the dollar. And to a very small extent, you may save in the euro. Um, so they use the dollar. They use, the, the dollar is heavily used and used as a savings as a savings um, vehicle. But common people don't have, you know, like the average person doesn't have a U.S. dollar bank account. You have to be a little bit more sophisticated to do that. But it's certainly what people with money do. In the reg regulatory case as well, like have you noticed any government or regulatory attitude towards Bitcoin in Costa Rica? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that... Um, it's highly corrupt and highly inefficient, which is just average for Latin America, right? Like that's that's par for the course when you go south of the U.S. border, right? And I'm not being judgmental. You can just look on a graph and be like, hey, what's their GDP? What You know what I mean? Like they're just, they've got intelligent people. Costa Rica's literacy rate is very high. It's at least as high as the United States, I think. Their educational system is fantastic. They disbanded their army in the 50s to spend that extra money on healthcare and education. They have free very high quality university. So it's like they don't lack an intelligent population, but their governmental system is still so corrupt that they're not able to leverage that into a good economy. So your question about like from a legislative level, would they do this? Would they, you know, take on Bitcoin and take on this risk? I think it kind of depends on how people like Bukele do in El Salvador. If there's a chance for an entrepreneurial style politician to gain favor in Costa Rica, there's a chance that it will happen. I think the, the younger generation, like the gap in the United States between boomers and millennials is it, there's some of there's a pretty decent gap in terms of like familiarity, comfort with technology, let's say um, that gap in Costa Rica is like five X. You know, it's like the gap between the older and the younger is is vast. And so in time, in, say, 15 or 20 years, when this younger generation that's just as technologically savvy as we are is fully in the leadership position and maybe there were positive outcomes in different countries, anything could happen. Because like I said, they're very smart, enterprising people. Um, but I think it'll take a while because the current generation is like really conservative and they're very like accepting of just corrupt politicians. They just don't. Mm -hmm. I don't know. We'll have to see. I've met so many Bitcoiners in the States and um, Canada and Europe, they're all looking to relocate at some point because they just see the, the, 
decline of the legacy countries and they want to move to somewhere a bit more hopeful. So on that note, would you recommend somewhere like Costa Rica, for example? I think it depends. So what I'd say what's against Costa Rica is it's expensive. Um, and so you're not it's not like Mexico where you're going to go to like Mexico City or some really cool other city in Mexico and just be like, wow, the quality of the food is so good, but it's like a quarter of what I'm used to paying or whatever. Um, but it's um, the community there is amazing. There's just like so many cool enclaves of very great creative expats all along the West Coast and to some degree on the East Coast and in some exceptions in the mountains as well. Mostly it's on the West Coast. Um, and so... If you can afford it, like if you're comfortable paying somewhere in the realm of U.S. prices, then it's it's pretty great because people are down there living good lives and the community, like I said, is fantastic. But people are usually they get sticker shock because they go down there and the food is like the same and the houses can be similar. Um, so, yeah, that's the challenge. What makes Costa Rica so expensive? I think the amount of capital that flows into it, um, there's like half a million expats or something that live there. Something like an eighth of the total population is expats. Um, so they're bringing those dollars in. Costa Rica has really good property rights historically. If you're trying to leave the United States and go somewhere south, um, one of the calculations you have to make is like how safe is your property going to be? And in Costa Rica, historically, your property's going to be very safe. They have a good rule of law. It's relatively safe uh, in terms of like crime. So if you compare it against the rest of Central America, you know, when we got our farm in southern Costa Rica, I had another friend in Nicaragua get another farm that was amazing on this island in Lake Nicaragua, which is like this super beautiful place. There's this amazing island with like two volcanoes on it called Ometepe. And he got this beautiful farm for like a fifth of what I paid. And I was like, he was smart. He got such a good deal. And then a couple of years later, there was a coup and he's, and he had to flee the country and he's sending Facebook updates from Norway. Like I can't go back to my farm. And I'm like, Oh, that's why you paid a fifth. You know what I mean? So that's why people pay more. And, and to some, to some extent, that's why they pay more. There's other things. They have good healthcare. It's included, um, in residency. So that's another big thing. There's but several reasons. But isn't that suck for the locals? Like, do they, how much do they make? Do they make, um, is their income level on par with the U.S. standard? Oh, it's not even close. It's not even in the same, like, you know, it's not in the same league whatsoever. Um, real estate. So I'd say only like 10% of towns or something. I'm pulling that number out of the air, but like a small amount of towns in Costa Rica have like a gringo Gringo isn't a dirty word in Costa Rica, by the way. It's like it's a. Some people think that it's like a racist term, but there it just means like white person. So whatever. So that I use that term I'm talking about. So like, if you have uh, the communities along the West Coast that have like a lot of gringos in them, those real estate prices are super high, and they're going to have a lot of expensive food that are that's facilitating the gringos. The vast majority of the country is in the interior in the mountains, and those prices are way cheaper you could still get a house there for probably like twenty thousand dollars and yeah the food is still pretty expensive compared to what we'd want but you could get plenty of food for five bucks seven bucks to go have lunch which is a little expensive for for latin america but um 
but those are not places that gringos necessarily want to live because if you live a lot of times they want like community or whatever they want to be around their own comforts so they pay these high prices to be in towns where you know they have amazing comforts but locals yeah there's plenty of places where it's the prices haven't gone crazy I remember the first time we got connected and we're like, oh, we should record these um, conversations. So I'm finally bringing you back for a recorded episode to talk about this. Um, it's, a, it's a big topic, so let's, let's try our best. Um, you grew up as a Christian. Are you still Christian? I didn't grow up as a Christian. Oh, oh interesting. Christian. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So tell, yeah. me, tell me about it. Um, what happened? Uh... <laughs> I forget what you call this. In, in Christian terms, this is your testimony. So I'm not going to give you my full Christian testimony because that would just take a long time and it's probably deep and boring. But I became a Christian in New York City uh, when I was living there. My cousin brought me to a church. And um, I just, at first I thought it was ridiculous uh, because I thought the idea of a bunch of people who thought that they had the truth of the universe in a book was just silly. It's easy to laugh at. And so I was like, whatever. But he, he, my cousin offered me dinner if I went to church with him. And I, I was kind of new to New York and didn't have friends. And I was definitely down for dinner. So I went to church a couple times. And the level of the conversation that was happening at that church and the, like, the value of the philosophy. I was looking at it as a philosophical thing because that's something I could understand. Um, was very high to me. And I was like, whoa, like, I don't believe most of this other weird, um, you know, mumbo jumbo, but, but these conversations are pretty cool. I got hooked in a really interesting way in that um, I thought churches were going to be boring, like stuffy, full of like square people, boring kind of like um, topics of conversation. And so I went in and <clears throat> I was in uh, tri. No, it wasn't Tribeca. It was, uh, anyway, I was in a really nice neighborhood at Chelsea, okay, in Manhattan, which is like a very nice neighborhood. And that's where this church was. And I looked around the congregation and there were like 300 people and they were all like in their 30s and like pretty attractive and looked good, like 20s, 30s, 40s. And just like, I looked around, I was like, wow, these are like, this is an interesting group of people. This is a nice looking group of people, you know? And so first I was just like, this I was just sort of, just superficially, I was like, I didn't realize the church could be full of people that I just kind of thought would be kind of cool. And then that sermon, what happened was he had a, um, the, the church is called Church of the City. At the time it was called Trinity Grace Church. And now that pastor has started a new church called Church of the City in New York. Um, he was giving a sermon and on his like made, on his big projector, he had the cover of a magazine called Adbusters, which is an anti-consumerist, anti-capitalist Canadian magazine that's like super roots and like pretty radical. And I used to read it. And um, the issue was called Hipster Dead End of Western Civilization. And it was about the emptiness of what was then called the hipster movement, which is now a long time ago, but like how it represented nothingness, basically. And I had bought that magazine and I had read that article and here I am at a church in Chelsea and this pastor is talking about this like really obscure article from an anti-consumerist Canadian magazine. Like that magazine is how Occupy Wall Street got started, for example. Um, and so, and I was looking around the room and I was like, I'm the only guy here who read this article that this guy's talking about. And that was interesting to me. 
You know, I was like, this is, it just changed my paradigm that I was like, wow, the level of conversations happening in churches can be like very informing. And then I came back the next week and he gave a sermon and the topic of that sermon or a major feature of it was David Foster Wallace, who is an amazing author and gave a graduation speech Uh, called This is Water. Yeah. 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 And so, um, he was using that as a means of explaining his, his like theory. Again, I'm looking around the room. I'm like, how many of these people read David Foster Wallace? But, but the pastor did, you know, and Dave Foster Wallace, you know, he committed suicide. Hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, I didn't think it was allowed for a pastor in church to talk about a guy who committed suicide. I thought my conception of Christianity was like, they would just be like, Oh, he's a bad guy. Don't talk about him. He screwed up. But instead, we're learning from like this extremely wise guy. So I had these experiences early on that flipped my concept of Christianity. I was like, whoa, we can have great conversations in here Mm -hmm. and better conversations than I'm having outside of these walls. And um, that's what got me going. And that had me going for about a year. I went for about two years before I became a Christian. I just went to the I went to the groups um, started like going to the mountains with people, hanging out, getting to know them. I was really cautious to just like get to know them and see how they acted and, and see how culty they seemed and how I felt about that. And like, it took me a long time to finally make the decision. Um, I read the Bible fully. I think, I think I basically read read it cover to cover before I made the decision. Um, eventually that world becomes real to you. Essentially that what happens in that world is, a conception of truth is offered to you. They're saying like, here's truth, right? And in the, uh, whatever, in the secular world, like truth is not offered to you. Truth is considered relative. It's like, she has her truth. They have their truth, but there's no like truth, right? And then you're in an environment where it's like, no, there's a truth. There really is, there's a truth. And it takes a long time of meditating on, on that, just the concept that there is one, you know, it took me a long time uh, to even accept that proposition. And then, um, yeah, so it took me a long time. And then eventually that it, what happens is once you meditate on that enough and you spend enough time with people who act out, act that out in their lives and you study it, what happened to me is I compared that truth to whatever truth I had in the secular world. It was like, well, what truth did I have before this? What's their truth? And I looked at these things on scales and I was like, there was no truth. (laughs) The secular world has no truth. It just throws up its hands, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like Wallace talks about, I think David Foster Wallace talked about this, where he's like, everybody worships, you know? Yeah. Everybody worships something. And so it's like that everybody out there is worshiping something. They just don't even know it. And then at least in this, in the church, in the Christian church, you're like being very deliberate about what it is and you've defined it. And that's uncomfortable. It's restricting in a way. But, but yeah, that was basically it. The fact that you didn't grow up as a Christian makes the conversation even more interesting because you have to go through the entire period of Christian peeling yourself. Um, Christian peeling, We yeah. take a Bitcoin term here. Yeah. Jesus um, peeling. So th- Right. You mentioned several um, stereotypes that you previously hold for Christian people and then kind of had your mind changed. Homophobic, uh, warmonger, 
afraid of deep topics, like fear of, of like things that could upset your worldview. Um, just like orthodox, uncreative, uninnovative thinking in general. Um, just traditionalism to a fault, fear of progress, um, outsourcing your critical thinking, you know, not being willing to think critically, just accepting. Like those were all the conceptions I had. Those are really negative. What were some of the exposures that you had that formed you, formed this um, stereotype for a question for you? In California, where I'm from, in like coastal Southern California, I'm from like 15 minutes from the coast, so it feels pretty. You know, we're close to the coastal culture. Um, there's just a lot of disdain for Christianity on the one hand. I mean, there's plenty of Christians too, but the average person, it's just kind of like, it's so blissed out there. People are just kind of like, why take on these kind of like dumb, strict rules in your life? Like, how do they know uh, what's real and what's not? You know, you just don't have a need for it down you know, there in many cases. Um and hang on, there's one other thing. So you asked, like, what formed it? Yeah, there was that. There was a, just a general negativity of it. Um, God, I was going to say something else. I think I always saw that Christians could do interesting things if they came together to do them. Like, there were always, like, Christian environmental organizations or, like, that soap brand Doc Bronner's that has scripture all over the bottles. I don't know if you've seen that, but that's like big in California. It's big everywhere, I think. And I'd be like, whoa, Christians can do like interesting stuff. So they, didn't, they weren't all square to me. Oh, this is what I was going to say. But right around that time, we invaded Iraq. And uh, we invaded Iraq like two years after I graduated high school. And that was like heavily backed by evangelicals. And I was, and they had, they backed George W. Bush. And when I would, yeah, that, I was 18 or so when he got elected. And my thinking was just like, you can't possibly, this is going to sound judgmental, but it's also something I think is, is fairly true. It's like, you can't be dumber than this guy. Like George W. Bush was an awful president, awful president, awful. And his cabinet was awful. And, you know, the neoconservatives in those wars now, 20 years later, we can look back and say, yeah, that was definitely a disaster. Like then I knew it was a disaster before we went in. I knew it was a disaster as soon as we went in. The whole time I knew it was a disaster. Now it's been 20 years and we've spent like $8 trillion or whatever it's been. Two of these countries are in shambles. Now we know it's a disaster. Evangelicals backed that move. And so when you ask about like why I had a negative impression of Christians and, you know, growing up, that was a huge one. I was like backing a war. There's no way. At that time, my thinking, there's no way they're right. There's no way Christianity can even be right because how can you have tens of millions of them? be in favor of invading an another nation and just laying waste to it for no reason. You know, like I took that pretty seriously and that really screwed up my vision of Christians for, you know, a decade. So now that you are a Christian, do you get why, why, where they're coming from with this choice? <laughs> where you're just agreeing? <laughs> no, to I think they screwed up. <gasps> yeah, I think they screwed up. What I think is like, I have, I have, Let's see. I want to be careful here. 
I don't like I want to have forgiveness for all the Christians who made the wrong choice back then or whatever. I don't I don't hold hostility towards Christians who made the wrong call at that time. I, there's no point in having that hostility. And I don't feel that hostility in my heart, but I still feel like it was definitely a wrong decision. And I think that um, what happened was in, you know, history, you can study this, but uh, like alliances were made between the Republican Party and the evangelical church and, and politics and state should not mix like that should yeah sorry christianity and state religion and state should not mix so that was just a mistake and i guess the way that i wound up finally realizing like in that two-year span of going to church and then becoming a christian one of the things i wrestled was with was this topic the the conclusion i came to was just like the church is just an institution like any other institution institutions can be very broken they're all human just because it's based on the words of Jesus and, and the Bible, you know, the, the Old Testament doesn't mean that it's pure. It's not pure. It's totally broken. I mean, look at the Catholic Church. Look at, I mean, just to get like uncomfortable with it, like we've seen like the child abuse, yeah. right? Like it's a broken institution. And, but what I realized is like, but this is earth. Every institution's broken. It doesn't make the teachings of the Bible incorrect. Right. Um, it that's how you're going to have to deal with everything for the rest of your life. Every institution you work with is going to be broken, especially if it gets big enough and attracts that kind of power, because if it gets powerful, it attracts the worst kind of people. We're experiencing that in the United States right now. You spent quite a long time to contemplate on this idea and the whole set of philosophy. So between what made you. What made you make the final call of saying, oh, I'm a Christian. I've made up my mind. And so for me, what resonated with me was, um, well, I guess just to be honest with you, what it was is it was a, the brief story is uh, my church basically said, hey, we're going to do a baptism class and we're going to like teach everybody what it means to be baptized. And I was like, okay, I was always curious about that. I had been going for two years and certain people were like nudging me like, dude, why don't you just finally become a Christian? And I was like, nah, like I, I just wasn't in any rush for it. But then this class came up and I was like, I'll go to the class though, just to learn. And I go to the class and um, our our associate pastor, whatever, our, uh, one of our pastors, Susie, drops a pamphlet on the table and is like, you guys are all going to get baptized in two weeks and here's all that you need to know. <laughs> and I was like, haha, yeah, right. Like I'm, I'm not here to be baptized, but I'm here to learn what that's about. And so, uh, you know, I took the, the pamphlet and all that. And just by sheer coincidence, I had a I had a meeting, a coffee meeting with the pastor, John Tyson, um, in between the uh, date of that class and the date of the baptisms for the church. Him and I had been trying to have coffee for like a month or six weeks. And we just had to we just kept pushing it. And then it finally wound up settling right between these two events. So I go to have coffee with him and we're, we're catching up. It's just kind of like that's what we used to do back then. And I remember that I was thinking about this. So I just go, hey, man, you know, there's a baptism thing going on. I'm kind of thinking about it. We talked about it a little while. And one of the main points he made to me is he was like, you know, a Christian has a, a Christian man has to be comfortable being like countercultural, like going, a, going away from the mainstream culture. And that's hard for a lot of people, especially in New York City, mm -hmm. you know, and 
he said a lot of things, but that's one of the things that like really stuck with me. And I went home and I prayed on that like really hard. And I was just like, cause that's what, I, that's what I realized. Like I was afraid of what it would mean to other people to not be like, you know, the kind of social chameleon that we all want to be, especially in New York where there's like super high pressure to have the right opinions. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, yeah, I realized like, I'm going to, you know, this would have to be a countercultural move. And when I realized that that was like a major obstacle for me and, and I prayed through that. And then, like I said, in addition, it was this, it was this weighing of realities. I was like, there's the reality of the church that I've been living in for the last two years and the reality of the truth that they claim versus what that's the thing versus what, because some people would say like, uh, versus the fact that like, I don't know. That's where the average person lays. They just go, I don't know. <laughs> so it's like, these people have a truth. I've been experiencing it. And then there's, eh, I don't know. You know? And so I'm weighing these two things out. It's not like there's two narratives. It's not like you can say, um, you know, the, a lot of people would say like, basically like politics manifests as people's religion or even Bitcoin manifests as people's religion, which we'll talk about. Like they have these other major priorities but I looked at it and I was like, there's nothing on the other side of the scale. Like there's this one version of truth that makes sense to me. And there's really like nothing else over here. Um, so it just be at that time, you know, in that moment, I was just like, this makes enough sense to me to take the step. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, let's talk about truth then. Cause I agree that we, we live in a world where objective truth is just non-existent. Um, and I'm like the way I think different people approach this very argument in different, like if you think it's true, then I believe that people kind of approach this argument with different, uh, different approaches, different ways. So myself, I've accept the fact that there's no objective truths and I'm just going to be aware all the time that objectivity is a myth and I'll, I'll, so I'm I'm dealing with everything in a very subjective level in the sense that I construct my own reality and everything happens to me. I choose my way, how I look at it, that makes me feel less crazy about this world, <laughs> makes me, gives me a little bit more serenity, gives me a little bit more peace, um, gives me a little bit more joy and comfort. Like I choose to basically make these up for myself. Um, and of course this has the, the good and bad things that come with it. And it seems like on your end, you're, uh, you're trying to find a, a set of truths that you believe. So I, I wanted to ask you, do you think at this point, at this point, do you think this is, the truth or you think this is the set of truths that you choose to believe? That's a really good question. I, what I mean is like, like I can say that, that the Christian truth is truth, right? And like what Jesus said is true. I can say that, but I don't feel that in saying that I'm saying anything about like Shinto Buddhism in Japan and what they choose to believe in their truth. And a lot of Christians might not like that because they, they're very strong on exclusivity. They're like, there's this, you know, scripture like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and 
you know, no one gets to the Father but through me or something like that, right, that Jesus says. And if people take this scripture as like, you know, everybody else is a heathen, basically. Like, that's how they interpret that. The way I choose to interpret, I'm not going to say how I interpret that exact scripture to get, you know, I don't want to get too deeply theological because I'm not going to pretend that I'm even that theological. Mm -hmm. But my feeling is other people, like, other truth systems may very well exist. You know, they may exist. It doesn't mean my truth, which is weird because I don't feel relativistic, right? I don't think that like everybody has their own truths. There's a ton of supposed truths that are clearly not true. That's the trick, you know, because there's always paradoxes. You start to dig into these subjects and you'll find paradoxes everywhere. And that's one of them is that there's definitely tons of false truths. We know that. Um, but then what I'd also say is, but I'm not in the position to call all, to call all of them out and say, everything is a false truth, but my truth, like, I just don't feel that way. So your question is like, have I found the truth? Um, I think I think that within the Christian system, the truth can be found. I think the truth can be found within the wisdom tradition and the tradition of the Christian system. I think the truth is in there. Somewhere doesn't mean that everybody finds it, but I think that it's in there. Um, am I saying that it's the only place where the truth is? No, I'm also not saying that. Now that you're a Christian and you identify as a Christian, what are some of the behaviors or obligations that you fulfill um, re regularly? Well, so after moving to Boulder, as you mentioned, I relocated from New York. I haven't found a new church. And so a church going Christian, you know, has various things. I'll, I'll talk more about that because I'm still in a new process, but like, so tithing is a big one, you know, giving away Sorry? the average, go ahead. Tithing. Do you know what that is? Yeah. You know what that is. Yeah. I don't, okay. I don't know what that is. You don't. Oh, it's giving away 10% of your income to the church. Right. Yeah. So that's a behavior that's like encouraged in the church is giving away. So, so tithing is, is a behavior that, I mean, when my cousin first told me that he tithed, I thought he was crazy. You know, I was like, dude, that's a car payment. Um, so, but it teaches you non-attachment with money. Giving away money teaches you non-attachment with money. And um, so tithing is a big thing. Um, just here's one, like hanging around people that you, for other reasons than just that you like them. You know, like prior to going to church, everybody who was a friend was just a friend because I liked them. And when you start going to church, you're forced to deal with all of these people who you might not even like, but you have to do a community group together or you have to like organize an event together or whatever. And you realize how much there is to gain from working with people and being around people who are not like the type of people you would normally choose. And that feels actually to me more like community in many ways than just like the people that you think are funny or cool or can help you get ahead, which was previously like the only people I hung out with. And so that reframing of community, just doing things for something bigger than yourself, which I think is part of like, you know, it's part of American history. What was referred to as like the civic religion of, of America was like people getting together to do things, but they would do them in their local communities. Um, the church has a lot of that. So those are two things that I think stand out quite a bit. Just from what you just said, it, it gives me 
a very contradicting feeling feeling about Bitcoin and Christianity because I definitely see some similar similarities, but I often I, I also see things that are very 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 much contradicting. So before we move further into this discussion, fundamentally, so many people says or many people compare Bitcoin with religion. Do you think, from your perspective as a Christian, um, what are your thoughts on the argument that Bitcoin is religion? Would you agree? I think that for a lot of people who don't have religion, Bitcoin has become a religion to them. It's become an idol to them. It's become like the foundational truth in their life. So would you agree? This, this, well, I guess, I guess you're, you're, you're making this true and not true um, for different people. So for those, for those of whom who don't have a religion, maybe this has become. But how about yourself? Do you see enough commonality, commonalities between Bitcoin and religion to agree with this very statement? Bitcoin's definitely not a religion. Um, it's definitely not a value. It's definitely not a theory of everything that takes you to like the history of the universe and how, why matter is created or exists and the, the, um, you know, whether we have souls and whether they survive death, like these issues, which religion takes on Bitcoin doesn't even get close to any of that, but it fills a religion size hole for people who don't have things like that in their life. What, what in Bitcoin makes, makes it feel the whole, feel the void for, I think it's sense of, um, permanence and that it is so based in principles. Um, I think there's a group mentality of it that's very magnetic, where it's like a lot of people have never been a member of a group that is also deeply aligned on a topic that they think evangelically, that they think could like fix everything. Most people never experienced that. And so I think that one, Bitcoin allows people to experience that and to be part of that, part of like the body of Bitcoin. And that feels like a religion to a lot of people. It feels absolute, right? Like Bitcoin fixes this, fix the money, fix the world, right? We're fixing the mm -hmm. world. So this absolute <laughs> pitch uh, gives people, uh, you know, it gives it a religious image to certain people. Right. Um, but I also see some contra. And then on top of that, I'll add to this point is the from my observation is the sense of ritual. Um, we as social beings, um, group, group living animals, we like to be a part of something and we do the signaling of it. Um, historically, either through religion or other, where any communities, um, you know, they have, like, that's why we have a need for swags. Um, we have a need for um, identifying that you're part of the group. Um, we see on Bitcoin Twitter, the laser eyes that you're instantly sending out and um, signaling that you're part of the tribe by adapting certain type of rituals. Um, you've, you've been to Bitcoin conferences, you know what it's like. Um, so it's, it's a lot of those ritualities that human craves that maybe Bitcoin is the only place or is the major place where they get these ritual feelings. And I think that's deeply fundamental to um, 
peaceful, peaceful feeling um, individual to approach to approach their social life with a bit more uh, substance and joy. Um, and I think Bitcoin gives a lot of us that feeling. So definitely. Um, but I also see some contradicting areas from what you're just saying. So you said Christians, they do this tithing. Tithing? How do you spell it? T-I-T-H-I-N-G. Tithing. T-I-T-H-I-N-G. Oh, tithing. Okay. So give to give away 10% of their, their paycheck. That's huge. That That is huge. And basically, you're saying that's that's a detachment from money, but Bitcoin is money. And yeah. Bitcoiners are stacking and they're accumulating <laughs> money. Yeah. So uh, how do you explain like um, it's such an interesting con contradiction? So in on this sense, like where do you see yourself like leaning against more? Yeah, I mean, I um, stacking. Uh, Sounds a lot like hoarding, you know, uh, yeah. which is cousins with greed conceptually, uh, which is not a good thing. So I, but I don't think it's bad categorically. Like I think stack sats, like Odell's thinks stay humble, stack sats. I think that's good. I think that's good to stack and DCA or whatever your method is like, I think it's good. I think it's good to have a stack. I think it's good to do it, you know, like, but that doesn't mean don't use it. I do think that within the community of within the Bitcoin community, there's a little too much hoarding. I do think that I think mm -hmm. people are so ready yeah. for this thing to like blow up. They're so ready for um, hyper Bitcoinization that they're like, okay, if I spend money now, it could be worth a hundred X this in 10 years. So I don't want to spend it now. And and that creates a, a kind of feeling of scarcity already. And I think that does exist too much in the Bitcoin community. And I think here's, I'll be real controversial, but like if you look over at the ETH community, like they don't have that problem. And <laughs> I don't love ETH at all. And I don't have, you know, that's not money to me. And maybe that's why they do it because it's not money. You know, they, some of them think it is, but it's not. But I will say that there's generosity in that community where it's like they're way into crowdfunding. And it's like, that's a lot smaller in the Bitcoin community. Certainly it exists. There's tons of super generous Bitcoiners. But it's not as culturally imprinted in Bitcoin to be like, hey, we give our Bitcoin away to this stuff. Like we stack and then we give some away. That's not like a big thing in the community. And maybe it would be beneficial. I'm sure there are subcultures doing it that I'm not as aware of. But I, I'd like to know more about that and see more of it happening. Um, I do see this slightly as a problem because we only live once and this is my realization until like we, of course you know this phrase like you only live once right and just like this catchphrase yeah, yolo. YOLO, that yeah like everybody says in college and beyond and um of course you know this but um i really only contemplate this until quite recently as a Bitcoiner, in the, in the sense of Bitcoiner, because we all stack sets, we all huddle. Um, and there's a trade-off between how much your Bitcoin can worth potentially in the future in X amount of time versus the experience I can create for myself using the money I have today. And you will only, like, as, as while it's very, very sweet to get... 100x, 10x, 20x, 1000x on your on your asset in Bitcoin, your time, it's 
your time is equally valuable, if not more valuable. And I want to, I actually do want to encourage more Bitcoiners to make the choice where to be a bit more conscious about the purchasing decisions that they make today because your kids only grow up once and you only have one lifetime that you can remember um, or where you can remember and how to and ultimately just like we work to better to, to just like we work to live better we stack sets to live better and if we're not living better if we're not in a good physical and mental state and depressed all the time the stats you're stacking almost become irrelevant because it's not serving your life's purpose. It's not helping you to utilize your time in a in a productive and fulfilling way. People assume that once you found Bitcoin, you found the truth. You found a world of um, enlightenment, and you and you'll be happy and free. Uh, I don't. I don't agree with that. And. I think this is a naive thing to say, just like you think that one single thing will solve all of your life problems, like marriage or having kids or a career or X amount of money in my bank account. Like nothing is going to magically solve all of the problems you have. And even if, even though Bitcoin may offers a potential path leading to freedom and happiness, it is still up to every one of us to walk that path ourselves to figuring out everything else to get there it's not a given it's not a guaranteed thing and it's really devastating to see so many bitcoiners are not happy they're bitcoin rich they're whole coiners perhaps um but there are a lot more things they can do to become the better version of themselves um with the help of bitcoin i think the priority level of bitcoin is very high and that's a really great thing because that helps pushing the change that we're all hoping to see in this world. But I definitely see the need of Bitcoiners take care of themselves better. And I see this trend on Twitter with all the quit seed oil and, you know, carnivore and build your mind and um, have a healthy gut. Like I definitely see this trend um, catching up more so than the, than the past uh, in the past couple of years. So I think kudos to Bitcoiners. They've, they've, figured out um, that the the physical and mental health are equally um, important thing of, of stacking stats and they're taking actions of it. So it's really great to see. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, it was speaking of like using your sats, right? Like mm-hmm. um, Peter McCormack had American HODL on a couple days ago and they were talking about that. And Peter was talking about like, what if Bitcoin goes way up, you know, I forget if they were saying, let's just say 10 X's or something or, or 20 X's from here. He's like, you know, you get all this money. Peter was like, I want to, I'd want to give it back to my community to some degree, you know, like build some stuff or use that for community development. And Hoddle was saying, you know, I'm saving for like generational wealth. He's like, I want to give this to my kids, you know? And, and so Hoddle was talking about giving it away, but giving it away to like his, his progeny, the next generation. And like, yeah, I'm skeptical of these people who are like all obsessed with creating general generational wealth with their Bitcoin, you know, because it's like, sure, like I'm not going to criticize Hoddle's perspective there. I'm sure that there's a lot of good to be done with that. But if, if that's at the cost of using it at all, like you said, if that's at the cost of like using it where it could be benefiting your mental health, your physical health um, 
or even your community, like there's a chance that in the Bitcoin community, we're not spending enough Bitcoin. And I know that with like, I agree with the HODL culture. For me, HODL is like really big, especially with downturns, right? It's about like, don't freak out, HODL. Like to me, that's it's the rallying cry of when you have a major downturn. It's like you hold on, you don't you don't let go. And I think that's good. But I but there's a nuance there where it's like, yeah, but don't like cling to it because I do just have this feeling within the Bitcoin community, like we might be clinging too hard to it. Whereas I think a healthy, from a bird's eye view, a healthy financial system would have a lot of flow in it. You know, I think it would have a lot of flow. Um, I could be wrong, uh, but I do think that there's, I, I think that you could look at it and that that's true, right? That we're, we're like blessing the local businesses that accept Bitcoin, you know, like places will accept Bitcoin and then nobody uses it. And I get why. I mean, I don't want to use it either. But I then sometimes I criticize myself. I'm like, but maybe you should be, you know, maybe we should be using these rails and and giving it away. If I'm stacking on one side and then I'm spending on the other, like that should be okay. There should be a way where I can do that and still reinforce the rails and use them. I'm sure there's something to do with the bear markets because like myself included, I have been like buying all the way down. Um, and, and that's part of the reason why people are not spending enough. And I, I saw uh, I saw a Twitter poll today, earlier today, and it's asking people how like what, what how do they deal with their Bitcoin? Do they huddle or do they spend and replace? And the majority, it's, it's not that much of a big difference. I think it's like 12% difference. But um, from the time that I voted, um, people are, majority of them are huddling. Um, so there's, there's definitely, I think there's definitely a pain associated with spending your Bitcoin in a bear market. And I think this, this will pick up once more places start to accept Bitcoin. And once we enter a kind of come out of this bear market, and once people are getting used to Bitcoin standard, because right now we're still on the dollar standard, um, we're on the fiat standard, um, most places and spending Bitcoin in your daily purchases seem like, still seem somewhat unrealistic. I do think over time this will change. Um, but yeah, like giving back to communities, um, for form a strong connection with people around you, whether you like them or not, um, it's it's a valuable thing to do, and that definitely contributes to someone feeling purposeful into in their own life. Um, and the sense of community, more so than ever, will um, provide a very positive impact on individual level and on community levels for sure. Being West Christian people made you rethink the definition of community. I think that's interesting because if you ask me. Um, a community is is a group of people that share very similar values and ideally like each other um, and rightfully so that we hang out with people that we get along with uh, most of the time don't you think the fact that they're they're christian and that they hold a very similar set of value with you um are are kind of knowledgeable um in this area where you hold great interest about can make you instantly get along just like when you meet bitcoiners it's like you you get to each other's facts and likes very much and more often than not you're gonna get along with them like do you see a similarity there we see there's some difference yeah i think that i think you make a really good comparison between bitcoiners and christians where it's like if you yeah if you're if you're hanging out with another christian 
you can generally figure out where their morals lie. And that gives you a lot of comfort and familiarity quickly. And that's not true all the time because there's a lot of Christians who whatever aren't, don't fulfill that for me. Like for whatever reason, we're not on the same page, but Christianity is like symbolically we're probably in line. And with Bitcoiners, it's, that's usually the case, right? But not always, right? There's some Bitcoiners who I'm sure you would meet at the conference just be kind of like, yikes, you know, like, you, you know, I do. I meet, I meet Bitcoiners that are like that sometimes. But more often than not, I really love the connection of Bitcoin with, with most people. And the conference, as, as you mentioned, that we met at is like amazing because it's around all those people. So, yeah, I do think it's like an auto connection, builds trust very quickly. Uh, it doesn't guarantee it, but it's a, it's a huge common denominator. So you think in that regard, um, Christianity and uh, Bitcoin is similar? It's similar in that you're gonna have you're gonna have something in common that you take really seriously. But I think that for mm -hmm. some people that could even be like cars. You know, it's like if you get two car nerds together that can look at a 1964 Chevy Chevelle or something, and they can start talking about all the components and compare it versus other things, those people are going to bond, right? They're going to want to go get a beer, like, because they've got this depth of something they're into. So I think, I think that's just true of deep topics, topics which people take very seriously. And I'd say, and Bitcoin is one of those topics where people just take it really seriously. Yeah. It seems like the being religious these days are um, saying that's not cool. So but there, there are many values that come from all these religions that are that can be beneficial on a personal level and on a societal level. So do you think there are some key Christian values that you see the societies lacking nowadays for the world to be a better place? Or in other words, what, what Christian values should we adopt um, or at least consider to adopt in order to live a more fulfilled life as individuals? Yeah, that's a huge question. That's a huge question. And I'm not sure. <laughs> I feel like that question is too big for me to answer, but I'll, I'll throw a couple things on the table at least. Um, I think if you just look at how Jesus conducted himself, you can, like people can learn an immense amount from just reading about that. Because I think that he conducted himself in like a great way. So to do that, you crack open a Bible for those who are like uninitiated. And you go to what's called the New Testament, which is the second part. The Bible's in two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. You flip open the New Testament, and the first four books are different versions of the life of Jesus. And they're really short. They're like 20, 30 pages apiece or something like that. So you can get through one in like an evening if you get into it or whatever, or go through the whole, all four books in like a week or something. And so as far as like the lessons to take away, like... <laughs> He, if you look at how he oriented himself with life, it's like, okay, he oriented himself to God, the father, primarily. So like the, the key source of truth, which was his father, which was, you know, God was like the most important thing to him. So he spent a lot of time praying and being in alignment with God. So he only, he only did what he saw the father doing. Right. And so he was super, he had great conviction and was super aligned with the truth from the beginning. Like that's how he lived. Right. And then if you look at how he dealt with conflict, cause we have a, a culture right now that has a very unhealthy amount of conflict. He didn't accuse just like other regular people 
of not being religious enough or, you know, he didn't make enemies of average people. The people who he was mad at were the elites, the religious elites who he called hypocrites. And he was very in like, that's the number one insult Jesus uses all over is hypocrite because he's looking at these religious elites that claim they know a good way to live. And instead what they're doing is just making it harder on everybody. And, and they've lost the source. The elites themselves have lost the source. They've lost the connection. And, um, and Jesus just goes after them. And so every time he's in a fight, he's in a fight with them. And every time he's talking to an average person, he's just like, he's blessing them. And he's just looking at people's humility and he doesn't care about politics really. You know, there's like a few exceptions where cultural differences will pop up. But I think that I think that's a big thing. I think it's like choose your enemy wisely, you know, and there's too many people in America right now who think that the other party is the enemy. And yeah. really, it's like the person in the other party is just like you. They just have a little different set of priors, but they probably want the same things you want. Their vision for society is a lot like yours, but that's not necessarily true of the elites. And I do think that there's like. I think that the Bible gets that right very well. There's a million things I could say about the Bible and the way that Christians can, that like Christian teaching could benefit society. But that one comes to mind big. Um, I guess I could just leave it there if that's a good enough answer for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll, um, I'm, I'm not a Christian, but I'll add on to that point because this is something that I've noticed as well in today's world is that people put more emphasis on people care about the differences too much. And, um, I think people's fix, people's eyes are fixed on how these people are theoretically different from from my am, but fundamentally, not 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 many, not much. And if you think about, like, there's a huge gender issue. We're getting into something very controversial here. There's like people. There's so much conflict between political parties and countries. I think it's quite dumb to be honest and um, the way I see it is that we are more alike than we realize and fundamentally before we are associated with any country before we are associated with any political party race or gender fundamentally we're humans and we as humans share more than we can possibly imagine and we humans share more with a banana than more than we can imagine and it's it's really not that much difference and people approach a certain groups with so much anger and resentment which is just in in my opinion sometimes just completely unnecessary and they like you said they have to worship something and a lot of people these days worship conflict and they need to find themselves through the conflicts that they have with others. And that's the only way, but that shouldn't be the way mm. that shouldn't be the way that we find ourselves. Um, they're more peaceful, more joyful, productive, and better for everyone ways to, to find, to find ourselves a place in the world. Um, and I think this is what in a way Bitcoin does for us as well is to find ourselves through a set of values, a set of tools that can truly free us from conflicts, um, not close closer to it.
We'll move, we'll move on. Um, so next I want to talk about the Civic Trust. Um, this is your company. Um, could you explain to our listeners of what Civic Trust is and how it promotes local community decision-making through particip- uh, participatory budgeting? Participatory yeah. budgeting. Uh, what, made, what motivated you to start this organization? Yeah, participatory budgeting is way too many syllables. So we call it PB, and I will be calling it PB today. So what it is, is I help practice participatory budgeting with cities. And so what they do is that process, what that means is they'll have a piece of the budget and a common amount is like a million bucks. And then I've got a website that we use where we go to the population and we say, uh, what are ways that you would like to see a piece of this million dollars spent in your own neighborhood? So let's say we're targeting a park, the people who work, uh, who live or work around that park or who just spend time in it, or maybe you're part of like an advocacy organization, an environmental organization, just anybody who has contact with that park can give ideas like, Hey, we'd like to see a fruit orchard. We'd like to see, uh, you know, more benches, shade structures, murals, fix the dilapidated bathroom, whatever these users are thinking, they put them on, they put these ideas on the website. People can browse those ideas. Then we take those ideas after a month or two and we go to the city departments and we kind of go, hey guys, which one of these can we do and which ones can we not do? And so it's very realistic. It's not just getting people's preferences and ideas. It's like we go to the departments, we figure out what's doable, we price the doable ones, Mm -hmm. and then we go back to the population with a ballot. We go, hey guys, these are your ideas to fix up like your asset with public dollars. So what do you want? How do you want to spend this money? And the people vote. And then the outcome of the vote is enforced by the local city. They go and they install those projects. And so that's what we do. Um, I did it in New York for two years before I started my own company. Then I started my own company. I've done it two years in Atlanta. And I've got um, another two cities that I'm going to be starting this fall. I can't quite announce it yet, but there's going to be two coming up this fall. And um, the reason I did it was just because I think... Everybody recognizes that the democracy, democracy in general, isn't looking good. There's very few democracies in the United States, I'm sorry, in the world right now that people look at and are inspired. And they kind of go, wow, they're, you know, the people are very happy. Or there's a lot of advancement or something. There's not a lot to get inspired by. And that leads to disengagement. And I realized that it's like the only way democracy really works is when people are willing to get involved. And what I think needs to happen is I think we need to have sort of an inversion of the way we do democracy. Right now, when people think of democracy, they think of like Donald Trump is a threat to democracy or Joe Biden is senile. And, you know, they think when they think of democracy, they think of like this far away leader that they don't like or they think of a party that they don't like. Or even if it's a party they do like, it's usually distant from them. And that's not what democracy really is supposed to be. Democracy is around being part of a local community. I'm interested in the civic part of democracy. So getting more involved in the place where you live. And when you do that, not only are you having a town which expresses your preferences in terms of the infrastructure and the way that it works, um, but you're gaining all kinds of civic skills. This also kind of goes along with the church thing. You're like working shoulder to shoulder with other townspeople and those bonds that you form are extremely important for your well-being to like eliminate loneliness in your life, to give you connections, 
to give you a sense of autonomy. I even think sovereignty, like if you look at the United States in its early days, sovereignty was like a huge thing. We had almost no government. Government was tiny, but we had extremely strong civic culture. Everybody got together to do stuff. And that was individualism back then. The concept of individualism was like, I'm responsible for myself, but I get things done in a group. And that to me is like, that's strong. That's what made us strong. And so I started Civic Trust with the idea of like, let's get refocused on on local projects and working with local governments and working with each other. Can you give us one example of a successful project or initiative um, kind of facilitated by Civic Trust um, process? How how does it work in in a real life example? Yeah, well, the last one we did was in Atlanta and they have a park there called Candler Park in District 2. And they had a very small budget this particular year. The year before, they had a, they had a million bucks that we spent. The next year, they only had $50,000. And they said, but we want to try and do kind of a micro PB in this park. And so I said, great, let's give it a shot. Because sometimes you don't have very many funds, but you can still have a great opportunity, like a great time with the local um, community. And so we partnered with local organizations like uh, the, the Parks Conservancy and the neighborhood organization and a trees advocacy group from Atlanta, they all came together and they said, well, we have stuff we want to get done in the park too. So we'll match funds with you because I worked with the city council office. And so they said, if you city council can cut the red tape and get projects done, we'll match your funds. So we turned the 50,000 into 120,000, which was great. And then we had like 15 winning projects. We planted fruit orchards. We painted all the electrical boxes. We put statues in. We put, we did weed abatement. I think we did some benches. We fixed an old pool that had been screwed up for a long time. Um, all kinds of stuff that just like local people, they look around the space and they're like, this would be better if we could just whatever. So 15 winning projects. And again, got people involved with these local community groups too, because that's what we'd love to see happen is, what I'd like to see it evolve into is people actually like the neighborhood organization coming and saying, you know, we'll match your we'll match funds for like these three projects, which we want to work on. And then when somebody comes to vote or to give an idea, we let everybody know, hey, if you live in the neighborhood, this neighborhood organization is trying to do this work. So maybe you can go volunteer with them or maybe you can, you know, learn about these civic groups. So we're actually reinforcing the civic culture. So we did a little bit of that, but I'd like to see more of that. But it, that was a successful project for sure. Sounds, sounds to me, it seems like this is you taking the permaculture uh, approach to urban, urban design, urban planning, in a way. There's a lot in common. There's a lot in common because it's systems, you know? It's like in, in permaculture, you're thinking about fertility all the time. Like what's going to make these plants thrive? And you, you can't do it in an artificial way. You have to do it in like an organic way. And so I think when you look at communities, you can think about it a very similar way. Like, what's the system that makes the community thrive? And what are the resources that are here? And how do we use them together? What challenges have you faced in implementing a process like, like this? And how are some ways to address them, in your opinion? Well, the challenges are basically just that cities are not used to devolving power to the population. So it's like if you work for the Parks Department or the Department of Transport, you pro- you might think that letting unprofessional residents mm-hmm. of the town make decisions about their environment is, you know, wasteful or pointless. It might even, you know, if I'm honest, like I think some people in those positions have their ego wrapped up a little bit in being the expert and they don't like the idea of a user of just like an, mm-hmm. an average park user calling shots 
Um, I think good leaders and like good leaders, this would be like a council member or a mayor or a city manager, whoever convenes the project, they want to be collaborative with their population. They don't want to call the shots on their population. They want to know what the population wants and work with them. And I think that's true also of like any public servant. It, you know, the lion's share of the budgets remain with the departments. We're not trying to encroach on their budgets or let them have them do less. A million dollars in the scope of things for a city budget is nothing. It's a fraction of a percent, you know, um, it's tiny. So they still have all of their autonomy, but it's like, but let the people have a little bit of contact, you know? And so I think the way the solution is like just trying to find people who have that collaborative nature. They're like, hey, this is a democracy. That means we want to include people, even if it's a little inconvenient or even if I think I know more than them. And the truth is when they do the project, what they realize is that, no, the community generally knows more than the the you know city employee because they live there and they spend way more time there like that's their park the city employee might be overseeing 35 parks but for them this is their one park and so crowdsourcing these ideas becomes very practical once you Mm -hmm. do it where to find you and follow your work yeah um just on twitter at uh matt underscore harder h-a-r-d-e-r and you can go to civictrust.us it's my website. Check out Civic Trust. And uh, if you're interested, we could chat about participatory budgeting. Just DM me. Thanks a lot um, for sharing your experience and knowledge so openly. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Vivian Chain, and this is Light with Bitcoin. I'll see you in the next episode.